When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today's discussion came from our archives and was recorded in January of 2023. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, a longtime faculty member here at the Henry George School. To celebrate Black History Month, we wanted to pause our regular content and give our listeners a special series on the political economy of Martin Luther King Jr. For the next two episodes, we'll continue our three-part series exploring Dr. King's intellectual evolution and how it impacted his solutions to addressing poverty. Mr. Dodson attended Shippensburg University and Temple University, where he received an economics degree. Ed worked for Fannie Mae, a public-private partnership to help distribute home mortgage loans. During his time at Fannie Mae, Mr. Dodson held numerous management and analyst positions within the Housing and Community Development Group, helping to revitalize neighborhoods and local communities. This gives him an interesting perspective on land use and reform and how it can reduce inequality. He also has extensive experience as a history lecturer at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute and the Learning is for Everyone program at Burlington County College. Edward has written many papers on history and the political economy and is the author of a three-volume book series titled The Discovery of First Principles. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Yeah, welcome everyone. I... A couple of years ago, I became very interested in what Martin Luther King had to say on economics or political economy, and what were some of his ideas that would contribute to the solving of the problem of generational poverty in this country and perhaps elsewhere. Somewhat unusual tonight, I would ask that you refrain from asking questions or making comments during the presentation. Hopefully, we'll have plenty of time after I finish. So I encourage you to take some notes. Uh, any any issues that come up in your mind that you'd like to bring up, we'll we'll cover at the end. But this is really telling a story. And so I want, want to use the time to tell the story from beginning to the end. To start with. We know that Martin Luther King, as the leader in the nonviolent approach to gaining full civil liberties and equality opportunity for persons of color, that's that's what his you know fame is for. That's that's what his objective was primarily. But less appreciated is his broader concern to really end poverty and the existence of poverty. In his book in 1967. Uh, where do we go from here, chaos or community? He was looking ahead to the day when racial discrimination was no longer tolerated. He knew this would not bring an end to poverty, that more had to be done. And so that was 
the focus of a lot of his energy. Now, what about King's thinking? Where did it come from? Well, it had evolved over or several decades, and an unlikely association developed with a journalist turned congressional staffer named Walt Rybeck. And it was really thanks to King's friendship with Walt Rybeck that King was introduced to the writings of Henry George, the 19th century American political economist. Well, who was Walt Rybeck? Well, he, in, his, in his autobiographical book titled Resolving the Economic Puzzle, Walt explains that Coretta Scott King, or when she was Coretta Scott, became one of his closest friends while they were students at Antioch College. In Walt's own words, he says, she was an aspiring singer before she married Martin Luther King Jr. Hearing her tell about the indignities her family suffered while she was growing up in Alabama was heartbreaking. Black churches around Ohio invited her to sing, and I went along as an accompanist. Mixed race couples were seldom seen in those seen in those times. We were never physically harmed as we traveled, but if looks could kill, we were relieved to reach the churches where the audiences invariably, invariably received me with the same warmth as Coretta. And after college, Walt began what began, became a remarkable career as a journalist. He worked at the Dayton Daily News, where he happened to come across and read Henry George's book, Progress and Poverty. Uh, he was soon drawn into the small community of the followers of Henry George scattered around the globe. Then, after John F. Kennedy became president, Walt was appointed the Washington bureau chief for Cox newspapers. And so that put him at the center of the political activity of the nation. And of course, uh, as the work of Martin Luther King Jr. increased, the opportunity came for them to spend some time together on occasion. How frequently Walt continued to see the Kings in subsequent years, he doesn't say in his autobiography. He only mentions a 1965 luncheon following King's meeting with Lyndon Johnson. What is clear is that thanks to Walt, King had come to understand that racism was only one cause of generational poverty, and that there were problems in our system of law and our economics. Deep changes in the nation's economic system were called for. King was convinced that this was the case. There were many people of every race who were born into and remained in poverty all their lives. However, Blacks suffered the most institutional disadvantages. The history of land settlement offered a crucial insight into the effects on persons of color, as King observed. He writes, after the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. And there's more he has to say. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. And finally, not only that, 
Today, many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is what we are faced with, and this is the reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. He felt there was time for reparations, of course, and that has been in the debate ever since, uh, whether or not Blacks and others who've been disadvantaged in the system are owed reparations. And King will have more to say on that later. But let me give you some, for those of you who don't have any real knowledge of his biography, talk a little bit about his life. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia in 1929. He attended the Booker T. Washington High School until 1948. Although he had not formally graduated from high school, he was admitted to Morehouse College. And at Morehouse, he, King was introduced to the writings of such philosophers as Henry David Thoreau, which had a lasting influence on the direction of his activism. He later wrote, During my student days, I read Henry David Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience for the first time. Here, in this courageous New Englander's refusal to pay his taxes and his choice of jail rather than support a war that would spread slavery's territory into Mexico, I made my first contact with the theory of nonviolent resistance. He graduated from Morehouse in 1948 and then entered the Crozer Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. Now, as a student at Crozer, King began to broaden his study of what might be called the great ideas. He recalls, I turned to a serious study of the social and ethical theories of the great philosophers from Plato and Aristotle down to Rousseau, Hobbes, Bentham, Mill, and Locke. All of these masters stimulated my thinking such as it was, and while finding things to question in each of them, I nevertheless learned a great deal from them from their study. King then decided to examine the rationale behind the communist ideology. He read Das Kapital by Karl Marx, as well as the Communist Manifesto. However, as a devout Christian, King rejected the communist interpretation of history. Thus, although King thought Marxist ideology to be without principle and even evil in its fundamental nature, he acknowledged why others might embrace it as a path to escape from long-standing oppressions. He wrote, With all of its false assumptions and evil methods, Communism grew as a protest against the hardships of the underprivileged. Communism, in theory, emphasized a classless society and a concern for social justice, though the world knows from sad experience that, in practice, it created new classes and a new lexicon of injustice. To King, the Christian ought always to be challenged by any protest against unfair treatment of the poor. Importantly, 
He came to the conclusion that capitalism as practiced was inherently unjust and in need of specific reforms. He expressed his concerns this way. He writes, my reading of Marx also convinced me that truth is found neither in Marxism nor in traditional capitalism. Each represents a partial truth. Historically, capitalism failed to see the truth in collective enterprise, and Marxism failed to see the truth in individual enterprise. Nineteenth-century capitalism failed to see that life is social, and Marxism failed and still fails to see that life is individual and personal. Well, in Philadelphia, <clears throat> he then heard a sermon by Dr. Mordecai Johnson, president of Howard University, who spoke of his recent trip to India and the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. King then decided to immerse himself in, into a study of Gandhi's life and works. He came to embrace Gandhi's strategy of nonviolent resistance as the answer to the unfair treatment of persons of color received in the United States. The question then arises, to what extent was King also influenced by Gandhi's views on reforms and how to end poverty? Well, Gandhi was a dedicated agrarian and championed the cause of the landless peasants. He supported the outright confiscation of land from India's large landowners to be distributed free of charge to the poor. It was his view that only those who actually worked the land should be permitted to own it. In his own words, he said, land and all properties is his who will work it. This is the basic land to the tiller idea. Excuse me a second. Well, years later, King was able to make the journey to India and visit Gandhi's place of birth. <clears throat> In a radio address made just before returning to the United States, here's what he had to say. Again, this is in India. Since being in India, I am more convinced than ever before that the method of nonviolent resistance is the most potent weapon available to oppressed people in their struggle for justice and human dignity. In a real sense, Mahatma Gandhi embodied in his life certain universal principles that are inherent in the moral structure of the universe. And these principles are as inescapable as the law of gravitation. In a November 1956 sermon, King presented an imaginary letter from the Apostle Paul to American Christians. And in this he stated, O America, how often have you taken necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes? God never intended for one group of people to live in superfluous, inordinate wealth, while others live in abject, deadening poverty. Speaking in 1963, King talked about the poverty that crossed the color line. He wrote, To this day, the white poor also suffer, suffer deprivation and the humiliation of poverty, if not of color. It corrupts their lives, frustrates their opportunities, and withers their education. In one sense, it is more evil for them 
because it has confused so many by prejudice that they have supported their own oppressors. Some of these are so powerful statements from King, and I hope, you know, listening closely and maybe even keeping some notes. Um, King asked some of the same moral questions raised by others regarding the treatment of nature as private property, of course. And this is a, the major observations from Henry George. King says something very similar. You see, my friends, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that is two-thirds water? Despite the history of how persons of color were subjected to centuries of unjust law, King looked to government to secure economic rights. He described capitalism as it existed as a system permitting necessities to be taken from the many to give luxuries to the few. The reforms he sought were directed toward achieving what political economists described as a just distribution of wealth. Government needed to be pressured to secure and protect economic as well as political rights. As King put it in a 1965 speech to the Negro American Labor Council, the good and just society is neither the thesis of capitalism nor the antithesis of communism, but a socially conscious democracy which reconciles the truth of individualism and collectivism. Call it democracy or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all God's children. King observed that in the world of 1963, Persons of color were the last hired and the first to be let go, all the more so because of improvements in the efficiency of industrial machinery. He states, the nation will also have to find the answer to full employment, including a more imaginative approach than has yet been conceived for neutralizing the perils of automation. Today, as the skilled and semi-skilled Negro attempts to mount the ladder of economic security, he finds himself in competition with the white working man at the very time when automation is scrapping 40,000 jobs a week. Though this is perhaps the inevitable product of social and economic upheaval, it is an intolerable situation, and Negroes will, know, will not long permit themselves to be pitted against white workers for an ever-decreasing supply of jobs. Well, King's vision of a world in which all persons felt part of society rested on a realization of full employment. To that end, he sent a telegram to President Lyndon Johnson. In that telegram, he writes, I propose specifically the creation of a national agency that shall provide a job to every person who needs work, young and old, white and Negro. I propose a job for everyone, not a promise to see if jobs can be found. There cannot be social peace when a people have awakened to their rights and dignity and to the wretchedness of their lives simultaneously. If our government cannot create jobs, it cannot govern. It cannot have white affluence amid black poverty 
and have racial harmony. King understood that without the opportunity to earn a decent living, the social conflicts that would only escalate into political turmoil and violence, threatening the very life of the democracy that was potentially the promise of the United States as a society. Because the private sector had failed to deliver a full employment economy, King called upon the federal government to fill the void. We must develop a federal program of public works, retraining, and jobs for all, so that none, black or white, will have cause to feel threatened. At the present time, thousands of jobs a week are disappearing in the wake of automation and other production efficiency techniques. In an article he wrote appearing in the April 3rd issue of Saturday Review during 1965, King acknowledged that racial and economic problems in the Northern states were far more serious than he had thought. His biographer, David L. Lewis, writes this. The illusion of freedom in the North had masked its hideous economic conditions. Matriarchal families whose morality was vitiated by perpetual dependence upon welfare programs, levels of unemployment that had actually risen in the decades since Montgomery and agglutinations of the impoverished in substandard housing that had few equivalents even in the South. Late in 1965, King arrived in Chicago to add strength to a coalition form to take on Mayor Richard Daley and Chicago's very real racial and economic segregation. High on King's list of priorities was the terrible condition of rental housing units available to Chicago's persons of color and to poor whites. King could feel gratified to some degree when in August of 1966, Chicago's officials announced that $500 million would be invested in 22 depressed areas of the city over the next two years. Moreover, after prolonged negotiations with Mayor Daley, an agreement was reached that promised an end to housing discrimination. The lessons learned from the Chicago campaign were significant, King wrote. For years, I have labored with the idea of reforming the existing institutions of the society, a little change here, a little change there. Now I feel quite differently. I think you've got to have a reconstruction of the entire society, a revolution of values. Under circumstances of widespread discrimination in the labor markets that faced persons of color, they had little hope of better pay and working conditions. According to King, unionization was one of the few responses available to them. Where Negroes are confined to the lowest paying jobs, they must get together to organize a union in order to have the kind of power that could enter into collective bargaining with their employers. King's final book is also his statement of positions on raising the living standards of the poor among his fellow citizens. This is where do we go from here, chaos or community? And here he states, we must create full employment or we must create incomes. People must be made consumers by one method or the other. 
We realize that dislocations in the market operation of our economy and the prevalence of discrimination thrust people into idleness and bind them in constant or frequent unemployment against their will. What King understood is that the existing system never achieved full employment. Even without bigotry and prejudice, there would always be a large number of people left out of the mainstream. Well, faced with the same observations, the economist Milton Friedman argued for a negative income tax as a means of enabling people to obtain necessary, good, necessary goods with the minimum involvement of social engineering and government bureaucracy. In 1968, Friedman answered William F. Buckley Jr. on the merits of this proposal as follows. Friedman's Freeman told, uh, told Buckley, the proposal for a negative income tax is a proposal to help poor people by giving them money, which is what they need, rather than as is now, by requiring them to come before a governmental official, date, detail all of their, all their assets and liabilities and be told you can spend X dollars on rent, Y dollars on food, etc., and then be given a handout. King continued in his own analysis. He said, economic expansion alone cannot do the job of improving the employment situation of Negroes. It provides the base for improvement, but other things must, must be constructed upon it, especially if the tragic situation of youth is to be solved. In a booming economy, Negro youth are afflicted with unemployment as though in an economic crisis. They are the explosive outsiders of the American expansion. Ever since families left the land to work in the cities, we have experienced high rates of youth unemployment. As King observes, the problems have always been far more acute in the sections of our cities with predominantly poor households. And of course, in many cities, the number of African-Americans living in sections with few employers has always been the greatest. Those who left the agricultural regions and sharecropping came to the cities to live and work, continuing to be sharecroppers, but with, with a different sort of landlord. Adults found their way into low-wage jobs, but the unskilled youth were simply left out altogether. As King expands on his observation, he says, depressed living standards for Negroes are not simply the consequence of neglect nor can they be explained by the myth of the Negroes' innate incapacities or by more sophisticated rationalization of his acquired infirmities, family disorganization, poor education, etc. They are a structural part of the economic system in the United States. Certain industries are based on a supply of low-paid, underskilled, and immobile non-white labor. The challenge, King thought, was to identify the structural flaws in the nation's economic system and press for changes in law. As the followers of Henry George knew, the answer was to be found by looking at who owns the land and captures its rental value. For the poor living in American cities, few own any land or even a house. As I have just stated in a very real sense, they are urban sharecroppers. In his famous 
April 1967 speech at Riverside Church in New York City, King made a damning indictment of a budgetary imbalance that continues to this day. He told us a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Toward the end of his book, Where Do We Go From Here?, King adds this, I am now convinced that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by a now widely discussed measure, the guaranteed income. The problem with this measure, in my view, is similar to the problem of the negative income tax proposed by Milton Friedman. King can be forgiven for failing to see the outcome. Friedman, the economist, should have thought through the issue more thoroughly. Increase household incomes broadly without increasing the supply of housing, and most of the increase in disposable income will end up in the pockets of landlords. At minimum, it's my view that government would need to construct millions of new housing units priced to be affordable to lower income households, whether that's for ownership or for rental. The estimate right now is that there's a shortage of about 7 million housing units for low and moderate income households in this country. By the time King wrote his final book, a large portion of the residential properties in US cities was crumbling from age and neglect. This is just one example of how extensive it was throughout many cities scattered across the United States in the early 60s and even until fairly recent times. And in some parts of some cities, uh, in Philadelphia, for example, there's still significant sections that look like this even today. Martin Luther King was working hard to get people to Washington, D.C. in 1968. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference initiated the Poor People's Campaign, and King stood with them. As King prepared to join the Poor People's Campaign March on Washington, he added his voice to those calling for an economic bill of rights. He called for guaranteed employment for all willing and able to work, a living income for those not able to work, an end to discrimination in the access to decent affordable housing, and the integration of the nation's schools. In Richard Leischer's 1995 biography, The Preacher King, Leischer concludes as follows. He says, Martin Luther King was the last of the great liberals in America to identify the purposes of social reform with those of Christianity. He routinely cast the struggle for civil rights in terms of light and darkness, good and evil, and the two kingdoms. In an article in Look magazine published just after he was murdered, Dr. King wrote as follows. He told Look's readership, we call our demonstration a campaign for jobs and income because we feel that the economic question is the most crucial that Black people and poor people generally are confronting. There is a literal depression in the Negro community. When you have mass unemployment in the Negro community, it's called a social problem. When you have mass unemployment in the white community, it's called a depression. And he adds, the fact is, there is a major depression in the Negro community. 
The unemployment rate is extremely high, and among Negro youth, it goes up as high as 40% in some cities. I would guess that it may be about the same rate today. But to summarize what I believe I learned in this examination of King's positions on how to deal with poverty, he believed that government is there to ensure that all citizens have access to what Mortimer Adler called the goods of a decent human existence. In his experience, the system almost everyone chooses to call capitalism fails to deliver the goods. Therefore, the system had to be changed and government had to intervene on behalf of those at the margin. King embraced democracy, but a social democracy distinct from the social Darwinism defended by some who stand right of center in our society. Unfortunately, like most of his contemporaries who cared deeply about ending poverty, Martin Luther King Jr. apparently did not fully grasp the extent to which privilege dictates economic outcomes in our country. Or perhaps more accurately, he had not yet recognized some of the most powerful forms of entrenched privilege that do in fact plague our society. To be sure, his struggles helped to lessen privilege based on race or the color of one's skin. Every day we observe how other forms of privilege continue to threaten our very democracy and stand in the way of a society built on equality of opportunity. As we have, as have many before and since, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his life in an effort to help change the course of history. And so the struggle continues and to some has even intensified in the years since King's death. The work continues and we owe it to ourselves and to the legacy of Martin Luther King to keep at it. I thank you very much for listening. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.